is faithful and gracious and merciful. And, um, and so um, I'm actually excited um, about this morning's passage. Um, last Sunday, we finished up our five-week series in, uh, during, for the Advent season. And we spent the last five weeks looking at the book of Micah and the fact that Jesus was the promised Messiah who comes not only to judge, but to redeem. In fact, in Micah 7, 9, it says, He pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. And that is the hope that we stand on together, is the hope that we have in Jesus, not only as judge, but as redeemer. And over the past five weeks, during this, this same time, during the same Christmas season, the Baptist Press reported on Wednesday that roughly 150 Christians were killed and more than 350 Christians were the victims of targeted attacks in Nigeria, Egypt, and India as a result of their faith. In that same Advent season, actually in two weeks out of that Advent season, you have 150 Christians killed for their faith and 350, more than 350 that are being persecuted for their faith. In one attack, it occurred on December 23rd, outside a a service, a church service that had just been taking place to celebrate the birth of Jesus. And a gunman awaited them outside, killing four and injuring ten. In India alone, in the last five weeks, there's been 23 separate attacks against Christians. According to Open Doors, a, a ministry which serves persecuted Christians worldwide, each month 322 Christians are killed, 214 churches and Christian properties are destroyed, and 772 forms of violence, whether it be beatings, abductions, rapes, arrests, or forced marriages, are committed against Christians throughout the world. The truth is is that persecution is part of following Jesus Christ. The truth is, is that we don't have to live in another country to experience persecution. Persecution even exists today in a different form in the United States. One such study reported that not only did it occur in the United States, but that the United States has a pattern of following that the precursors for persecution by beginning to categorize Christians in specific groups and in using those groups and identifying their kind of said ideology, identifying them as just unbendable and rigid and beginning to lump them all together is the the precursor to persecution to come. The truth is it's precisely the truth of Christ and renewed life in him that causes people to persevere for his sake through the suffering. And these Christians that we're talking about that over the last five weeks experienced this persecution, they've endured. And it's because of their renewed life in Christ, the, the life that they have through Jesus. And so today we're going to pick up where we left off in our study in Acts. And we're going to look at how the apostles dealt with persecution. You see, rather than seeking the comfort and approval of the world, they sought to fulfill God's purpose knowing that true life is in Christ. So let's go ahead this morning. We're going to stand as we look at Acts chapter 5. We're going to be going from verse 17 through 42. It's a longer passage, but let's go ahead and, and read it together. And this is what it says. 
it says, but the, the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. And when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charge you to not teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. God exalted him in his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to the men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it's of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be opposing or found opposing God. So they took his advice and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, this morning as we come before you, Father, I pray that you would settle our hearts. Father, I pray that our hearts would be ready for your word. That, Father, we would hear from you clearly as you bring forth your word. As you speak to our hearts, as you convict our hearts, as you encourage our hearts. Father, may the burdens that we experience today the fears, the concerns, even the joys. Father, may we just lay those at your feet right now. 
Father, may we rejoice that you are a God who has a plan and has a purpose. Father, may you push me aside this morning and may it be you who brings forth your word boldly. Father, may our hearts be open to hearing what you have for us this morning and may we see with your eyes and hear with your ears. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. Being alive in Christ frees us to faithfully serve God and experience his joy in spite of persecution. Being alive in Christ frees us to faithfully serve God and experience his joy in spite of persecution. When we're alive in Christ, we get to experience this service unto God in faithfulness and the joy of his salvation. And so being alive in Christ frees us to faithfully serve God and experience his joy in spite of persecution. Now, we know that persecution comes in lots of different forms. We experience, some of us may have experienced where our faith is literally bringing us to the brink of death. For others of us, it could just simply be that we have relationships or friendships or even work in places that seem to be hostile to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That the truth is, is that if we're experiencing that hostility because of our faith, that is a form of persecution. We know in Nehemiah that there were those as they were building the wall that heckled those who were building the wall. There are those today that may be heckled for their own faith, standing up, speaking the truth. That's a form of persecution. It may be different than the person who's standing at the the end of a gun that's being told to renounce their faith or die. Now, most of us have a choice of the kind of persecution that we'd like to experience rather than another, right? Most would say, I'd take the heckling over the gun. But the truth is, we often don't get to choose the kind of persecution we face. But what God wants us ready for is the persecution. What he's desiring for his believers is to walk out his truth even in the midst of this persecution. Now notice in verse 17 it says, But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. Now what leads to this? Well, If you recall, when we left off in Acts a month and a half ago, we talked about Ananias and Sapphira. And both of them had been killed, had experienced God's judgment for lying. Lying to the Holy Spirit, as the scripture tells us. And following that, there was this great work, this great movement of the apostles going out carrying out God's work and the power of the Holy Spirit. And it says that there were multitudes of men and women greater than ever before that were coming to Jesus. 
In the midst of that, there were even those that were bringing the sick to be healed just so that the, the shadow of Peter's cloak might go over them so that they might be healed. Now, if you can think about this for a moment, the high priests who have already charged the apostles, Peter and John specifically, with not speaking in the name of Jesus, all of a sudden, these guys now are not only speaking in the name of Jesus, but there's more people coming to Jesus. And the high priest is seeing this, and it says here that he became jealous, or that the Sadducees themselves, along with the high priest, became jealous. Now, the word here for jealousy is actually a little different in Greek. The word is zoe, and it literally means, or zelo, it's, it's a it's a, it's a word that brings in the idea of zealousness. It was zeal. And it carries with it the connotation of misguided zeal. In fact, there's even with it kind of this idea of a moral imperative. So the priests here are both concerned for two reasons. One is they've instructed the, the apostles to stop, and they don't stop. They're not following the instructions that they've given. There's the immortal imperative. I have the authority you were to follow. But with it, it was this zeal, this zealousness, this blind zealousness, this misguided zealousness that was causing this quote-unquote kind of jealousy. And so because their authority had been questioned and their zealousness to maintain that authority, they throw them into jail. See what's happening? It's really about the high priests and the Sadducees maintaining their position. It's really about them maintaining control. And so they're put into prison because of this misguided zealousness or this jealousy And so during the night, it says in verse 19, but during the night, the angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. So think about this for a moment. The apostles now, not just Peter and John, are thrown into jail. They're brought into this jail, and in the middle of the night, an angel of the Lord comes and opens the doors. Not just a door but opens the door to the prison, right? And this angel comes and he says, listen, what I want you to do is I want you to go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. Now, when you've been wrongly convicted and you've been let out of jail, for many of us, our desire would be to get free of that jail. The thought of going back to the spot that put us into jail is not something we're thinking about. How do I avoid this again, right? We want to be as far away from there as possible. Hey, um, thank you, Mr. Angel, for, uh, for sharing with me that uh, you want me to go and stand. That's great, but you saw what happened last time. I'll see you later, right? It's kind of what Jonah did, Right? As comfort seekers, we can often be that way. We can, we're willing to take that first step of discomfort, but when it begins to get more uncomfortable, we want out. We want to find our safety. And so these apostles, 
They're instructed to go. And they're instructed to go, and as the angel puts it, he says, speak to the people all the words of this life. Wow. What he's saying here is, I want you to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, but not just the message. I want you to proclaim the complete totality of what life in Christ is, which means that it is God first in all things. It means that because my life is here temporarily, and my life is secure eternally with God, I can completely surrender this life to Jesus. It's living eternally now in the here and now. It's having an eternal perspective that says, you can touch my life here, but you cannot touch my life there. It says that God is the protector of my life and not this world. See, the Greek word for life is zoe, which literally means to be alive. That's what it means. It says, in essence, if you can restate that, it says, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this being alive in Jesus. What it means to be alive in Jesus. And so it says, now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now think about this for a moment. These officers have come. They're looking for the apostles they were clearly put there. The guards are in place. The jail is secure. And they're gone. They're gone. Now, one of the things that the apostles understand in this is they've experienced the prison doors being opened. They understand that their faith in Christ, that Christ has done a miraculous work, a miraculous work in salvation and a miraculous work in deliverance. Because they understand this miraculous work, it frees them to go boldly to the place that God has called them. And so in verse 24, it says, Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. Now think about this for a moment. Those officers are the same officers that had put him in the court earlier. They've seen healings in the name of Jesus. They've seen the power and authority in which the apostles are teaching. And now they've seen the apostles released from the prison. And they're perplexed. The reality here is the hardening of heart that has taken place. The seeing and the revealing of God's movement and work and yet the rejection to protect self. The protection of self almost always leads to a hardening of heart. Because God desires to be our protector. 
And so it says in verse 25, and someone came and told them, look, the men whom you've put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. That's pretty awesome. They get released from prison, they don't run away, and they're standing right in the temple, obedient to Christ. And it says, then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. So if they were to preach this message of being alive, and they begin preaching this message of being alive in Christ in the temple, when faced with persecution, how do we reveal the true life of Christ in the midst of persecution? Notice what it says here in verse 27. After they had been brought by the, to the council, it says here that the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Now notice what Peter says. He still speaks the words of this life. The first thing he says here is, we must obey God rather than men. So in the midst of persecution, when we experience persecution, we may not even feel like God is doing anything. We may not even feel like this is going to come to a good end. But what we can know is that what we have, we have with the scripture here, with the apostles, is a model of how this life, this life in Christ, is being revealed in the midst of persecution. The first is this. It's obedience to God. First, obedience to God first. We have to decide who we're going to serve. In the midst of persecution, when we're faced with being challenged, the first question we have to ask is, who are we really looking to serve? When we're confronted with those who are questioning our faith and, and making fun of our faith, and when we're in situations where we may be the only believer standing up or we're at work and somebody asks us a question about our faith, we have to first decide who we're going to serve. Some of you know that when I spent time in the hospital, one of the things that God continued to do was use different opportunities to proclaim the gospel. And one of those opportunities occurred with a doctor who came, whose own family was walking through an immense trial. His spouse had been diagnosed with late third stage cancer. And I remember him walking into this office an hour late to this appointment, his hair disheveled, and he sits down on the chair, and he simply looks at me, and he says, Pastor Tim, I need you to pray for me. And then he steps back, and he says, no, 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 I can't do that. That's a violation of all kinds of laws. And he says, no, no, you, you can't do that. I, I'm your doctor. You're my patient. I remember looking at him and I said, we're two men who love Jesus sitting in a room. We can pray. We can pray, right? In that moment, I remember watching him in his own faith where for the next five months, we scheduled appointments weekly just to get together to pray in his office. 
Oh, he went through the idea of let me check and see if I see any signs of infection and then he'd sit back and he'd say it's time to pray. Why? Because the decision that he made was that it was better to put God first. It didn't mean that he didn't respect the rules or laws that were there. It meant that he respected God more. And he saw the power of God in a greater way. We have to decide in the midst of persecution who we're going to obey. Are we going to obey God or are we going to obey man? When we see somebody at work who's struggling, who we know that Jesus is a part of that answer and they're asking us for hope, what would we do in the situation and we're conflicted in our own heart? We have to come to that place of saying, my obedience is to God first, not to men. It doesn't mean that we're belligerent or that we go and we choose to outwardly and rebelliously break the law. It means, though, that we need to listen to the Lord first. And if the Lord is calling us to that individual and he is putting upon our heart to share, then we need to share. And we deal with what comes. I remember 15, actually 20 years ago now, sitting in an office room with my own vice president sitting in our conference room sobbing. And we did. We had a policy at work that didn't allow us really to talk about our own faith. But I remember walking in to her and simply saying, I don't know what's going on, but can I pray for you? We sat. We prayed in that conference room. And what came out of it was a woman who had left the Lord years earlier, grown up, believing in the truth of Christ, fallen away from the Lord, her marriage was in shambles, and God gave the opportunity to begin to share together, to pray together, and to see her seek the Lord on behalf of her marriage, on behalf of her relationships, and experience healing that can only come through Jesus. The truth is we have to be willing to say God is first And the apostles were saying, listen, I don't really care that you charged us with that. Our obedience is to God, not to you. And where so it fits that we can come in line with both, we'll do it. But our first allegiance is to God, not you. William Barclay points out, he says, and their ruling principle was that in all circumstances, obedience to God must come first. They never asked, is this course of action safe? They asked, Is this what God wants me to do? I think sometimes in our conservative Christian culture, we're so bent towards safety and comfort at times. Our first question is not whether it's comfortable or safe. Our first question needs to be, is this what God wants me to do? And if it is, then step out in obedience with him. The second way that we reveal the true life of Christ in the midst of persecution is that we share God's truth directly. We share God's truth directly. In verse 30 through 31, it says, The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Now listen, just for a moment here. Their first question is, hey, 
We've charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Now notice what they don't do here. They don't go, uh, sorry, we didn't mean it to be that blunt. I'm really sorry that that's just the way it is, and uh, yeah, I didn't, I didn't really mean that. It's not really where I was going with it. What do they do? Peter doubles down here. He says, listen, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. He addresses their sin. He does it outright. He doesn't kind of take this roundabout circle hoping that they'll see their skin, their, their sin in this convoluted discussion of what maybe might have happened. But he says, no. Here's your sin. I'm not trying to put this man's blood upon you because this man's blood, upon, blood is already upon you. As sinners, it's already there because Jesus went to the cross for it. Saying it doesn't change it. Saying it doesn't bring it about. Saying it says, listen, you are guilty before the Lord God. And yes, this man's blood is upon you. But guess what? This blood was shed for you. And for those that have faith and believe on Christ will experience his salvation through forgiveness. Matthew Henry says, the apostles, instead of making an excuse or begging their pardon for bringing the guilt of this man's blood upon them, repeat the charge and stand to it. People's being unwilling to hear of their faults is no good reason why they should not be faithfully told of them. It's a common excuse made for not reproving sin that the times will not bear it. But those whose office it is to reprove as Christians must not be awed by this. The times must bear it and shall bear it. We're called to address sin, to deal with it. They answer it directly. And so it says that God exalted Jesus. What does it mean? It means that while we disgraced him, God honored him. And that he gave Jesus his full authority. And this is why we speak in his name. It's because he has the full authority of the Father. In Matthew 28, 18 Right before he, he gives the Great Commission, I want to encourage you to write that verse down because the part of that verse that's often forgotten or ignored, he says right before he gives us the Great Commission in verse 19, he says in verse 18, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus has the authority of the Father. Isaiah 55, 8 through 9 is another great passage. And it says this in Isaiah 55, 8 through 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. The point that he's coming to right here is, listen, for us, we may not fully understand but what we can grab hold of is that Jesus has the authority of the Father. God's ways are different than man's ways. I've been listening to 
an individual this week that just kind of came across a YouTube video of sharing his faith with a Mormon. And the Mormon kept coming back and saying, I can't understand this. I don't understand how Jesus is God. I don't get it. As I listened to this man walk this this Mormon through the sharing of faith, I mean sharing of, of Christ's authority, it was amazing how as followers of Christ, when we understand that Jesus has the authority of the Father, how that changes things. Because he now has the authority to forgive, to redeem. And it says here that he was exalted, that he had been raised up by God, and then that he became our leader and our savior. Now this word leader seems kind of interesting in this passage. It really does seem out of place. But it's a word that's not used often in the New Testament. It's a, a, a word that's archegos, and it's a, a word that means hero or prince. But it also literally translates as originator and founder. So here's what's happening. They've just said to you, you've put this blood upon this man upon us. And he deals with that right away. Wait a second here. You hung him on a tree. That's you. That's us as sinners. But now he's been exalted as leader the claim that they were also making was that he had filled Jerusalem with this truth. And the idea of filling here is filling water into a pitcher. It's so full, it's overflowing, that the truth is going forward into the city of Jerusalem. And what this is saying when he says this is, listen, of course we're filling him up with this truth because it's God's truth. He founded them. He's the originator of this. It's his. They are his We can do, he can do, whatever he desires. The violation is not against God. And so what they're pointing out is by you preventing us from filling up, you're actually taking the rights away from God and you are holding the right of God and you yourself are acting as God. This is a direct answer, isn't it? Listen, Jesus is to be the leader and savior. He's to be the ruler of our lives. That's what he's saying. What he's saying is you've already been bought with a price. We're God's. And sometimes in the midst of persecution, we want to move away from those direct answers to maintain our security and comfort. The third way that we reveal it says in verse 32, and we are witnesses to these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey. It's through personal testimony and witness. Personal testimony and witness. Our lives are to bear the testimony of the truth of Christ. You see, when we walk in the repentance and forgiveness of God, what ends up happening is as we have faith in Christ, 
He grants us as a gift the Holy Spirit. Our lives become changed and transformed and we bear witness to the truth of who Jesus is. Our lives become a living, active testimony. Now, I, I think it's important to look at one part of this that's, that's key. In cultures where comfort is a priority, Christianity leans heavily on the actions of the believer. It's true. We use words like friendship evangelism. We use let our lives simply just be salt in the midst of, or light in the midst of darkness, which are all true. But there's another side to this. The apostles started with the truth and then lived out the truth. They started with the truth and then lived out the truth. Which means that there are times that we need to use discernment and we need to use that discernment clearly. We do not want to bludgeon people with the gospel. However, we also need to not come to the point of saying, well, I'm just never going to share it. I'm just going to live it and be present with them. We need to be looking for those opportunities when people have questions to speak directly. And we need to realize the gospel is not just something that's seen in our lives, but it's also something that's shared via word. God has called us to express it verbally and express it in our lifestyle. And our lifestyle confirms the truth that we verbalize. Our personal testimony and witness and the power of the Holy Spirit verifies and affirms the truth of Jesus. I share that with our kids. Do we realize as kids that even honoring our brother and sister actually is a way of affirming the truth that we hold? the life that we walk in. As husbands, loving your wives sacrificially is a way that we hold to that truth and affirm the truth of Jesus. As wives, being subject, submitting to your husband, that's a way that we affirm the truth of Scripture. Loving our neighbors as ourself is a way that we affirm the Scriptures. Because all those things in our flesh cannot be done long term. They can only be done through Jesus and a change of heart. One pastor says, when a cause is trying, witnesses of all men ought not to be silenced, for the issue of the cause depends on their testimony. The giving of the Holy Ghost to obedient believers, not only to bring them to obedience of faith, faith but to make them eminently useful therein, is a very strong proof of the truth of Christianity. Ian Thomas points out the Christian life can only be explained in terms of Jesus Christ and if your life as a Christian can still be explained in terms of you, your responsibility, your willpower, your gift, your talent, your money, your courage, your scholarship, your dedication, your sacrifice, or your anything, then although you, have, although you may have the Christian life, you're not yet living in it. It is to be the power of the Spirit at work within us that's changing and transforming us. 
and our lives are to bear testimony of the transformation and truth of Jesus. The fourth way that we reveal the true life through this is seen in verses 33 through 39. And the part here is that it's trusting God and his loving, redemptive plan. Trusting God and his loving, redemptive plan. Now think about this for a moment. It says, when they heard this, this being the Sadducees, the council, the high priests, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. Now there's something important to know about Gamaliel. It is believed that Paul sat at the foot of Gamaliel and Gamaliel taught Paul. Now we'll see later in the book of Acts that it is Paul, or Saul, as we know him at that point, that was one of the greatest persecutors of Christians. The apostles would have never guessed that Gamaliel was going to stand up and do this. They had to trust in God's redemptive plan, in his loving redemptive plan. So whether or not their life is spared was irrelevant because they had to trust that God's plan was greater than them, that he loved them, and that his plan was redemptive. And sometimes what happens in this passage is it says, well, gosh, in the midst of persecution, there can be an error that's taken in here, which is that God's always going to deliver us from persecution. Well, we know that if 150 Christians have been killed just in three countries in the last five weeks for their faith, we know that God does not always deliver in the midst of persecution. Why? Because it is even in death they are testifying to who Jesus is. We have to trust in that redemptive plan. And the apostles trusted God first and then in the loving redemptive plan. Here's what's not going to happen. You can't trust in God's redemptive plan apart from trusting in God. But we try sometimes. We know that we want to do God's will, but we really don't want to commit fully to God. There are times in our life where we say, yes, I want God's will, but really when what is asked of us, we're not really committed to God. In fact, some of us go through and we carry out God's will, and it's begrudgingly because we're expecting something in return. How often have we done ministry with an expectation that something is going to happen when we do this specific ministry? People are going to respond away. There's going to be specific fruit. It's going to occur this way. When we're doing ministry that way, we're actually seeking God's will, in essence, apart from God. Because if we understand God, it's, it's his deal to bring the outcome that we desire. I think what can happen often within Christ's church is that we can often serve God with an expectation and say, I'm not valuable. They don't need me anymore. I mean, I, nothing really got accomplished here. But what if in your service, God had one person come before you? Ministry is a people-related service, not a task-related service. The task is always secondary to the people. The task is a means of serving people. And so if we 
hold tight to that, if we grab hold of that, we can begin to trust God and his outcome, whether or not we see a viable, fruitful outcome immediately. The apostles probably did not see much of a a benefit to this right away. Not certainly standing in the council, but once they got free, they saw how lives were being changed. So, what are some barriers to suffering for Christ's sake? We see this in verse 38 through 39. One of the very first barriers to suffering for Christ's sake is spiritual apathy. It says, for if this undertaking is of man, it will fail, but if it's of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. Gamaliel was challenging these guys to take a wait-and-see approach. Just a wait-and-see, see what kind of happens. Now, these were the same men that had already witnessed what had occurred in the prison, what had occurred with the sick people, when works of healing and works of miracles were being performed, and Gamaliel is still telling them, hey, wait a second, just take a wait-and-see attitude. That's spiritual apathy. That's being confronted with the truth and yet not responding to it. It's not saying I completely reject it, but it is saying, eh, if I get around to it, I will. The second barrier that we see is right below that. And it's really drawn out in this passage, but it's the fact that fear of man is a barrier. In verse 40, it says, And when they called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Now, Gamaliel had enough sense to be able to say, Listen, be careful how you deal with them. But Gamaliel knew that if he took the side of these Christians, he was going to be beaten with them. And even though he cautions them, and even though he gives them instructions to be careful for what they do with these apostles, Gamaliel feared men more than he feared God. Fear of man will always prevent us from revealing the life of Christ in the midst of persecution. God's called us to fear him, not man. To revere him, not man. It says in Proverbs 29, 25, which I want to encourage you to write down, Proverbs 29, 25. When we fear men, the very thing that we're looking for, security, is the very thing that we lose. But when we fear God, the very thing that we were thinking we might lose is the very thing we gain. And this is what it says. Proverbs 29, 25. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. What's the safety? The safety is that our eternity is secured with Christ. The safety is this life is temporary and whatever God has called me, I cannot be separated from his love. So what's the essential truth of this passage then? In 41 through 42, it says, Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Life in Christ allows believers to rejoice and boldly proclaim his truth in all circumstances. Life in Christ 
allows believers to rejoice and boldly proclaim his truth in all circumstances. See, when our life, when this life, what the apostles was speaking about, life in Jesus Christ is paramount. When we grab that nothing can separate us from the love of God as a result of this life and that it is the Holy Spirit's power that's working in and through us, this life, the earthly life, becomes minimized. And the life in Christ, the eternal life, becomes exalted. And we become exalted with Christ that one day we too shall be heirs with him in his kingdom, rejoicing together, knowing that there is nothing that can take away the life that we have in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. 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 Father, thank you that we can stand with you. Father, thank you that we can come to your throne. Father, may we see us as alive in you. God, may we not see our life as simply what is before us, but God, may we see the life that we have completely and fully in you. That God, because of that life in you, we can go boldly in front of others. Father, may you equip us, encourage us, challenge us, strengthen us this week in your grace so that when we face persecution, God, whatever extreme it may be, Father, may it be from a friend who simply has questions, that's doubting, that's making fun of the faith, or may it be also, Lord, for standing down the barrel of a gun, May it be, Father, your grace that is completely sufficient for us. And may those who are near us see that you are alive in us. May they affirm and see the truth of who you are. Father, may we be as the apostles. That, Father, when the prison doors are opened, may we simply look to do what you've called us to. May we not seek the comfort of this world, but may we seek our security in you. And we ask this in your name. Amen.